0: Hello everyone, this is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. I am delighted to welcome our 23rd guest to the SIOP Conversation Series, Dr. Dana Born, the Faculty Chair, Senior Executive Fellows Program, Faculty Advisor for the Black Family Graduate Fellowship and Lecturer in Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Before we start today's conversation, I want to remind you that the majority of today's questions were submitted by you, our listeners, thank you. I also ask that you turn off your video and remain on mute for the entirety of the conversation if you are joining the live discussion. Also, a reminder that all episodes of the Sciop Conversation Series are recorded and published as a podcast on iTunes and are housed on the Sciop Conversation Series landing page. As our live listeners will notice, today's conversation includes video. As part of this platform, you also have the opportunity to ask questions throughout the live broadcast using the chat function on Zoom. Dana has graciously agreed to remain on the line for 15 minutes following our standard 30 minute broadcast to answer some of the in the moment questions you might have today. Now I am happy to welcome Dr. Dana Bourne to our conversation today. Dana is a retired Brigadier General with 30 years of service in the United States Air Force, having served as a military commander in times of peace, conflict and crises. Prior to Harvard, she served nine years at the United States Air Force Academy as the dean of the faculty, leading a 750-member faculty and staff with a $350 million annual budget. Previously, Dana served as the commander of the 11th Mission Support Squadron, Bowling Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. In that role, she served as an on-scene commander during the 9-11 attack on the Pentagon. Other assignments included aide, speechwriter, and policy analyst to two secretaries of the Air Force. Exchange Officer with the Royal Australian Air Force, and in Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. Dana is the recipient of the Secretary of the Air Force's Eugene M. Zuckert Award for Outstanding Management Achievement, Air Force Association's Hoyt S. Vandenberg Award for Outstanding Contributions to Aerospace Education, Air Force Distinguished Service Medal, Legion of Merit, and Defense Meritorious Service Medal. She earned the HKS's Innovation and Teaching Award in 2017 and the HKS's annual teaching awards 2014 through 2020. Currently, Dana is an independent director on the Midwest Reliability Organizations Board, serving on the Finance and Audit and the Governance and Personnel Committees, independent director on the DeVry University Board, serving on the Audit and Finance and the Academic Quality and Student Success Committees, trustee on the United States Air Force Academy's Falcon Foundation, serving on the Strategy and Governance Government's committee, committee and formerly the Scholarship Committee, Supporting Director on the Air Force Academy Foundation Board, and past President and Board Chairman of the International Women's Forum, Massachusetts Women's Forum. She advises with honor, mission readiness, Blue Star Families, and Child's Guide Award. Dana also serves as a Distinguished Fellow in Moral Leadership for the Howe Institute for Society, Consultant for the Core Leadership Institute and a peer evaluator for the Higher Learning Commission. She is past president of the American Psychological Association, APA fellow in Society for Military Psychology and fellow for the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology. Previously, Dr. Bourne served as an independent director on the board of the Apollo Education Group, having served on the compensation audit and special litigation committees. A graduate with distinction from the USAFA, Professor Bourne received her B.S. in Behavioral Sciences, M.S. in Experimental Psychology from Trinity University, Texas, M.A. in Research from University of Melbourne, and Doctorate in Industrial and Organizational Psychology from Penn State University. She received Penn State University's Alumni Fellow Award in 2012 and Distinguished Alumni Award in 2018, and was awarded an Honorary Doctorate from Simmons College in Humane Administration in 2007.
1: Dana, we are thrilled that you could join us today. Kelly, thank you so much and what a long introduction. I hope we can get right into a conversation for our amazing listeners here today. I'm humbled to have this time and common cause with our uh, SIOP.
0: Well, a long list of, of accomplishments and certainly many areas we could dive into to learn more across your scientist practitioner career. So Dana, your path in the the world of IO is pretty unique. Can you tell me a little bit about how you first became interested in
1: IO psychology and your decision to join the Air Force? Well, I'll be honest. Uh, I I actually uh, came into more psychology and didn't discover industrial organizational psychology till much later in my life. Uh, and it wasn't really when I came into IO psychology in 1991, you know, there weren't that many programs. I'm so happy to see how psyop and industrial organizational programs at many levels have really grown. I entered into the Air Force Academy the day I graduated from high school. And truthfully, I I started majoring in biology to be sort of on the pre-med track. And I was interested in what I call biopsychology. And I realized that competing uh, with med students in courses that I had no interest in, I decided to switch from biopsychology to psychobiology (laughs) and studied psychology. And from there, I moved more into uh, graduate level psychology until uh, I was back teaching at the Air Force Academy and was asked by the Air Force to go into IO psychology at the PhD level. And I had done some work in job analysis, got a a little bit of a peek under the tent of the excitement in industrial organizational psychology. And so that was really at the PhD level. And I was grateful to be able to go to Penn State and uh, begin the IO journey there. And so,
0: talk a little bit, if you would, about your time in the Air Force. Um, So, how how did you choose that different um, paths you can choose outside of that career?
1: Boy, that's a great question, Kelly, and I often get asked that, and it was really somewhat miraculous. Uh, My father uh, was uh, enlisted in the Coast Guard, but he was a Uh, educator. He was a vice dean of development in a small college where I grew up in Penn New York. And I went to a college fair with him at the University of Vermont. And I saw the Coast Guard Academy booth. And I got enamored because of him and because of the opportunity to go to an academy. And the uniforms and the mission kind of drew me in. But I had missed their deadline. And I didn't want to wait a year, you know, as your senior in high school, you kind of want to you want to go to college with along with your peers. So they said, well, you've missed our deadline, but there's these other academies. And I was a scholar athlete. I was a distance runner. And my coach actually helped me explore the other academies, the Air Force Academy, West Point and the Naval Academy and the Air Force Academy, the mountains, you know, the running culture kind of drew me in. Uh, Obviously, it drew me in. And then I got addicted to the mission of the United States Air Force enough to keep me in for 30 plus years. What a fascinating story, and uh, I
0: would never have guessed the tie between the running and uh, in the Air Force career, so thank you for sharing that. During your time in the Air Force, you experienced periods of peace, conflict, and crises, including serving as an on-scene commander during the 9-11 attack on the Pentagon, as we talked about during your introduction. Can you talk about how you were able to apply IO techniques and best
1: practices to your time serving as a leader in the military? That's another wonderful question, and I think I'm going to tell you a story first in order to answer the question, because so many times in the military, when we sponsor people to go off to receive a, a, an advanced degree, um, let's say in engineering, and then they go off to pilot training, we often hear things like, well, I haven't used my degree, you know, in ump ump years. And to me, that just means that we didn't learn and grow in whatever experience we had. And So uh, you change your lens whenever you go through an experience of a graduate degree program, your your way of thinking, the way that you uh, just make sense of the world. You know this, and our listeners know this. So one of the things that, you know, in going through an industrial organizational PhD program at Penn State, I had a lens of thinking about everything from the I side you know, to the O side. I, I did a lot in organizational behavior in the business school. And, and I think I approached and, and, and tried to contribute in, in that range, uh, no matter what the issue was. When I first became uh, the department head uh, for the behavioral sciences and leadership department, we were undergoing uh, a sexual assault and sexual harassment, and I'll say crises. I came from nine um, eleven in response to uh, a war on terror in Washington D.C. to what I thought was going to be a very kind of relaxing and comfortable educational uh, role at the Air Force Academy. We found ourselves in the middle of what became, obviously, it's it's more than just the Air Force Academy. It's on all of our campuses and around the world. And so, you know, there was the lens of IO psychology dealing with that. There was an end, a lens of IO psychology dealing with culture and climate issues that Uh, we were faced with, whether it was behavioral issues, whether it was, um, you know, diversity inclusion issues, whether it was, uh, you know, actually, we had a campaign to change our culture. So that lens, I think, enabled me to have a distinctive voice on many of these issues. Can you talk
0: about how your leadership techniques varied during times of peace, conflict,
1: or crisis? Oh, boy. Uh, so I, I I can and probably have to share with you that I learned some very important lessons about leadership style by dramatic failure of trying to apply one single style across different contexts. And I'll just explain that. Uh, as a commander in Washington, D.C., with mostly enlisted airmen during crisis of 9-11, I really was very directive. And that that style worked extremely well with my team who were recognized for many over 30 people recognized for going above and beyond the call of duty and responding to that time. And that directive style I took with me, uh, reinforced by how well that worked to achieve the mission and to recognize people uh, really uh, making that mission successful. Uh, I went out to a Academic institution with primarily PhDs and was uh, directive in time of crisis there and failed miserably. Now I'm the same person, uh, and that style seemed to work in one context, but I didn't adjust to uh, the new context and, you know, while still being myself. So I've really learned a lot of how we have to stay who we are, but we have to really be environmentally scanning in terms of, you know, who are the people, what is the context, and how do we adjust with our styles and our toolkit in order to better um, make it work well together. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we
0: we had a number of questions around the, the history and the intersection of IO psychology and the US military knowing that there's a long relationship between the two, especially from a research perspective. Can you talk about where you feel IO has the most opportunity to positively impact
1: um, the military? In many, many ways. Uh, I, We'll start as a second lieutenant. My very, very first uh, role and responsibility was doing job analysis for the Air Force and, you know, doing job analysis in order to determine, you know, whether our training was up to date and how we could better train our airmen in order to do the tasks, especially the important tasks that they needed to for our mission accomplishment. And also in working on writing promotion tests with subject matter experts to make sure our tests were also aligned with what we were trying to accomplish. Uh, Then fast forward to just this past year, uh, I had the opportunity to work on a National Academy of Sciences Committee looking at uh, generations and whether or not generational categories were a useful, cata- a useful way to think about uh, the future of and, and, uh, workforce sponsored by uh, the United States Army. So there's a, a 30 year plus range of where IO psychology can really contribute into um, the work within the military, <laughs> the mission of the military, and actually even with helping the military sometimes spearhead for other organizations, uh, really good practice, good science, and good practice. Do you see any
0: future frontiers that appear to be especially promising for where IOs might be able to
1: contribute even more so in the future? Yeah, very generally, Kelly, I would say it's the the role of humans. (laughs) And I say that because I'll, I'll use the Army model of be, no, do. And, you know, there's a lot that we have in who we are distinctively, as humans, in terms of you know what we what we know uh, through our education, what we do through our training uh, and our skill development, the education training model, uh, that common model is really being uh, we're we're being bypassed right in terms of staying up with what is available in augmented or artificial intelligence. Uh, But the B component of who we are as human beings, you know, our values, our ethics, our character, uh, what motivates us, our support team, and all those, uh, what some would say the softest part of the soft science is becoming more important. Uh, uh, Even yesterday in a faculty meeting, I heard the word moral leadership and moral purpose more than I've ever heard in one hour time of a conversation with very... um, significant colleagues uh, who are really um, contributing to big questions and big challenges and big issues that affect us uh, globally and and nationally and globally. So I I would say that is probably the most important thing uh, in terms of what IO psychologists can contribute to in uh, the way that the future is shaping up. Thank you. We had a question
0: from a listener, Devin, who submitted a question about the differences between civilian teams and military teams. So, comparing research to that we conduct on civilian employees, where, if any, are the largest differences in terms of how teams and individuals function within their workspaces? In other words, are there best practices in the military that would not cross over to a civilian led team and vice versa?
1: Boy, I found. Uh... I found really not that much difference in my own transition from 30 years in the United States Air Force, the United States military, uh, you know, and some service abroad, to my last almost eight years now uh, on the faculty and serving at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, I, I'd say there's a lot of really distinctive uh, hierarchy and A level of hierarchy in the military that is one difference. But I see some of that also in the corporate sector and nonprofits. And the the one difference is that, you know, in the military and maybe, you know, other professions as well, you wear sort of your history on your uniform as a uniformed member, you know, where people sort of think they know you. They can see your, you know, insignia and how long you've been in and where you've been stationed basically by a quick look. Uh, that's very difficult in the civilian sector, and I think uh, there's a lot, sometimes less clarity about distinctive mission and the role that you have within the mission. I think if, though, if those are kind of the two things that stand out to me, uh, that it, it's the hierarchical clarity, but maybe that's just because of the lens that, you know, I lived that for so long. And then the other is, uh, I, I think it's your the mission clarity, uh, and, and, and people's role, how they know what part they play in a distinctive mission. Thank you. And another
0: listener, Nancy R writes as a female in the military, it seems like you blazed your own trail. Were there any lessons you took away from serving and leading as a, as an underrepresented, a member of an
1: underrepresented group in the military? Well, I, mine's probably going to date me a little bit, but it's a great question. And I think, uh, the lesson i'll just put the bottom line up front we call that the bluff (laughs) the bottom line up front is embrace your distinctiveness and that's something that i did not do in in many ways uh when i entered into the united states air force academy in 1979 it was when women it's the first time we had women in each class women started to go to the military academies in 1976. So I was a freshman in my first year when there were women in each of the four classes. With only 9% of us, I kind of just tried to fit in. Uh, You know, you didn't want to stand out really. You just wanted to be one of the airmen, right? One of the team. And so I really tried to be uniform in my uniform. And when I went off for my PhD, I remember a very um, wise gentleman who was our department head, who said, Dana, as you go off to study at Penn State, I really encourage you to embrace women's studies and, and focusing on you know women in the military and women in the workforce. And it's probably the best advice I was given that I kind of uh, somewhat ignored, unfortunately, because of my own blind spot, that I am a woman. And I was clearly being sponsored to go to school because people saw potential in my further taking on responsibilities in the Air Force. And so I actually did take some women's studies courses and I started to realize the mantle of responsibility I had, whether I wanted it or not. I was a woman and I'm going to be representing women in the military and I really needed to embrace that and be knowledgeable and and skillful in how I uh, continued to serve. And so I would say, embrace your distinctiveness. I love that
0: bottom line up front, embrace your distinctiveness. That powerful message that can carry across to so many people in so many settings. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Another one of our listeners, Kristen D is interested in your shift from the military into civilian work and life. Can you talk to us about your transition from
1: your military career to your civilian career? I would love to. It's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking that, Kristen. Uh, I'll, I'll share with you a lesson that again, I failed at. And it, I, it took me failing at this in order to be able to be aware and to help others through the transition. I'm now an advisor for a fellowship we have at Harvard for veterans and active duty military. And one of the things we focus on is this military-civilian relationship and transitions. And I'll, I'll, I'll just let you know another story that will share how I failed. When I left the Air Force Academy and retired, I took one week off between my retirement and starting on the faculty at the Harvard Kennedy School. And when I got there, a colleague uh, really took me under her wing and said, I really think that you're ready to become part of the Council on Foreign Relations. Are you interested? And I said, well, absolutely, that would be a great honor. And I had to reach out to other members who were uh, on the Council of Foreign Relations to support me. And I reached out to all my Kennedy faculty friends who were all civilians. And I had to put that by her as my support and she said, Dana, what are you doing here? Why, why you've been 30 years in the military. Don't you believe that people are going to look at that and say, well, where's her military references? There's many people that are, are from the military that are part of the council and foreign relations. And so she came back to me and he said, don't you know, anybody that's on the council that have military contacts with you and know you from the military? And I said, well, absolutely. But it was just an eye-opening. Like, why was I trying to shift the pendulum so far to be being civilian and, and not embracing that I'm both and not either, or just because I retired, you know, you can take the person out of the military, but not the military out of the person. Maybe I needed to be both and, and embrace my, uh, what I've just spent my life doing in my next chapter. So it was a lesson learned. So in transitions, I think it's a wonderful place to, in one way, reinvent yourself It's also another way to really solidify the who am I and why am I? And how do I live my answers to that question even more as I live and learn and lead onward? Thank you. And
0: what what lessons were you able to take away from the military and apply to your career in IO and and academia beyond what you've shared?
1: Uh, Boy, there's so many lessons learned. I think the, the, the way that I think about most problems or challenges or opportunities are based on the framing that I spent over half of my 30-year career in developing leaders of character. And so in that journey, I think about developing leaders of character every moment of every day in terms of how am I growing and, and investing in people growing personally and professionally at the individual level. How am I and how are, am I developing others to lift others up and develop others? And then how am I contributing to and helping others contributing to mission accomplishment? So it's based upon kind of a conceptual framework of individual level development uh, a focus on others, kind of a service of leadership, the hu- hu- humility in uh, other oriented leadership, and then obviously getting the work done, uh, being effective at accomplishment. And so I think that's what I bring from 30 years. And you know, there's so many other nuances. It's like when something goes wrong, I automatically think, oh, oh my gosh, was I clear in the expectations? you know, it's me first. What, did I lay out the expectations? And if the answer is yes, then the second is, is there something going on in their lives that maybe is influencing them not having their peak performance? Uh, and if the answer is no, then the third thing is, okay, let's remediate and or, you know, start a performance plan. But that whole, I think there's reflexive type thinking I have from 30 years that carry on into, you know, the, the, sharing with others and trying to uh, continue uh, in my now civilian service. Thank you.
0: And you talked about some of the things that helped ease your transition from military to civilian work and life. Um, Looking at that transition through the lens of I.O., how could we as I.O. psychologists use our knowledge and skills to help ease the transition for others going through the military to civilian job shift?
1: You know, I think that... Well, at least one of my, and I hadn't thought about this uh, in advance, but I think one of my realities is that I wasn't, I didn't listen enough to others, you know, have my own curiosity uh, when I first transitioned and I I kind of just went into a lens I'll give you an example if you you know I went to a, a faculty meeting that was two and a half hours or three hours and, and I would leave going boy we could have done that in 15 minutes uh, you know and I, I kind of walked away with more of an assessment and a judgment then I leaned into an understanding of I wonder what is unique about these meetings that have sustained them being the length that they are and and what is it that I'm not understanding or getting and and also I think that I you know in putting together things I would put together things in a military format and think to myself that's the format right this is 30 years of developing how to do a short white paper and I didn't necessarily lean into curiosity about how is it done here and what is the way that people you know communicate you know policy change initiatives in this organization and so I think there, there was a lot of listening, learning, curiosity, uh, as opposed to just assuming and, and, and jumping to judgment that uh, IO psychologists can help, I think, in both directions. Because there's a lot, too, that Harvard didn't under, doesn't understand and didn't understand, you know, about what military bring. <laughs> And so there's there's mutual uh, learning and lessons that can happen. So how do I/O psychologists help create the bridge, the both end, uh, in organizations for lots of differences, not just military civilian. Absolutely, yeah. That leaning into curiosity
0: um, notion, I think, is something that could certainly be af- applicable to really any kind of transition in work and life. So thank you for sharing that. Um, moving to your time. And- Academia. You lecture in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and have also served on several finance and audit committees, um, some more from a governance perspective. How do you inject your knowledge and expertise in I.O. and research psychology into these roles?
1: Whew, again, the, 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 that's a very great question and really <laughs> it reminds me of, you know, right after your dissertation, when somebody says, you know, what was your dissertation about? And you, you don't know how to answer that in, in, in like uh, an elevator speech. (laughs) There are so many ways uh, to provide that lens on these various boards and you listed, and many of them, they're very, excuse me, they're across uh, private sector, government, nonprofits. Uh, I'll give you one example in one organization where I was the Uh, president and chairman of the board. We were going through a transition of having just hosted an international conference for senior level women around the world. And we were in a bit of a precipice time where we were growing rapidly, but we were trying to uh, embrace our heritage, but then leap into a very much more activist future. And that process of kind of reinventing ourselves but staying true to our who are we and why are we as an organization we did a lot of work on our uh, our heritage and our, um, our our purpose in terms of then figuring out how we could pivot from our purpose to be able to launch into uh, what is the new VUCA world. Most of our military understand that VUCA, uh, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world that called for us to be much more activist. So that is just one example. Um, There's many in these other roles uh, because I think IO psychology, which is really, it's the psychology of work. (laughs) And all of these organizations are workplaces that are trying to do things in whether it's energy, education, uh, for national security, uh, you know, it's for environment. It's, uh, it's actually, um, what we do is important in so many sectors and in so many ways at so many levels.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Could not agree more. Goodness. Um, thank you. You mentioned, uh, the concept of moral leadership earlier. Can you talk to us about the idea of morally, le- of moral leadership and, um, One of our listeners, Michael G., had a question specifically on this. In the time of COVID-19, how does a leader's focus on humanity impact his or her ability to effectively
1: lead? Thank you. This is probably uh, the most urgent, imperative, uh, and question for us as IO psychologists to wrestle with, whether you're somebody who's focused on selection or culture or uh, training uh, research, it is uh, so much, I'll say the moral imperative right now. It's an existential uh, uh, question. Uh, I'll, I'll share, I'm part now of a institute, a nonprofit called the Howe Institute for Society, which you mentioned, I'm fortunate to be able to be a distinctive fellow in moral leadership with them. And we just finished a study on human connection and found out that uh, 88% of people feel less connected over this last year in our virtual work. And I know there've been several other studies that have been uh, done and are continuing to uh, be done because now we know that the uh, many organizations are going to be uh, telecommuting and, and embracing some of what we've learned in this pandemic time for telework for many other reasons. So uh, what we found was that people feel less connected and mostly it's uh, people under 30 and women and people who operate in more independent uh, type roles. And what we also found was people who are leading that establish more moral leadership, moral purpose qualities mitigate or actually even um, erase That impact uh, erase that difference. So, moral leadership, um, seeing the humanity in others, operating from a place of purpose, inspiring and elevating, you know, not carrot and sticking people, (laughs) uh, you know, the things that we know second nature um, from a a platform of values. uh, These are all things that actually matter in treating people fairly, and people are responsive to that uh, and step up into the workplace in a different way. So moral leadership matters in uh, basically everything that we do, whether it's in our homes, on the playing fields and communities, uh, in our workplaces.
0: Thank you, yes, and very timely, uh, that question.
1: We, We
0: unfortunately are at the end of the time for the recorded portion of our broadcast. So to our podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in. And Dana, on behalf of SciOP, the Visibility Committee, and all of our listeners, thank you for your service to our country, your service to the field of I.O., and for
1: joining us for a powerful thought-provoking conversation today. Thank you very much, Kelly. And I wish everyone all the best. Please stay sa- safe. And thank you for everything that you do to contribute to uh, psychology in the workplace and making the world a better, safer, more just place. I'm in deep gratitude for everybody and everything that you do. And we to you. Thank you. And
0: to all of our listeners, please join us for our next conversation on Wednesday, May 26th with Dr. Evan Sinar. The head of assessments at BetterUp. Our future lineup also includes the likes of Richard Landers, Janine Wachlowski, Alicia Grandy, Andre Davis, Ben Schneider, Mary Plunkett, Tammy Allen, and Enrica Ruggs, among others. In addition, we would like to announce the upcoming release of a special new edition episode of the SAP Conversation Series. Our first international guest, Sharon Parker, joined us in a recorded session to discuss her perspectives on the future of work design. The special session of the PSYOP Conversation Series can be found on iTunes as well as on the Conversation Series landing page at PSYOP.org. To our podcast listeners, until next time, take care.